NP Voices. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin. In this episode, we'll get agitated about donor retention and donor loyalty with Roger Craver from The Agitator. Will Carey, with the Portland Museum of Art, shares how the organization invested and innovated their way to fundraising growth. And Amy Braderman with Blackbaud will be here to discuss key trends and metrics in peer-to-peer fundraising. That's all next on NP Voices. Roger Craver with The Agitator and Donor Trends now joins the NP Voices show. Welcome, Roger. Hey, Steve. It's great to be here. I've lined up a whole bunch of topics I want to pick your brain about. And the first one is donor retention, which is a topic I know you've been talking about on The Agitator and at conferences and events probably as long as I've known you. Do you think people in the nonprofit sector are getting tired of hearing about they need to do a better job with donor retention yet? Well, I think the ones who are about to be fired are getting tired of it. The ones who are going to be uh, tomorrow's heroes, I think, are paying attention more than they ever have. And I have to tell you, Steve, it's heartening to see the conference topics, to see the articles, to see the volume of email I get, Chuck Longfield gets, about this topic. People are beginning to understand that without retention, there is no future in at at least direct response fundraising because it so affects the cost of acquisition. And when you're pouring a lot of money into the bucket for new donors and they're flowing right out of the bottom, it's an untenable business model. You you, you simply can't sustain it. So yes, I think it is uh, is being paid attention to uh, more and more. I can tell you quantitatively in a few months, I'm coming out with a new book called uh, Retention Fundraising and we'll see how that sells. Now, one of the things you mentioned, obviously, is people have been rebounding from the recession. Do you think part of this renewed interest or renewed vigor and really wanting to solve some of these core retention problems is because of the, the damage that uh, a lot of nonprofits were impacted by in the recession where acquisition really took a significant drop and, and those organizations who didn't have strong retention programs in place were hurt more than others? I think that's exactly it. Because the, the traditional direct response model, particularly direct mail, which, is, uh, which has been the model in use for nearly 40 years, is the, what, what we refer to as the burn and churn model, that as you lose donors, you can easily replace them with cheap acquisition mail. In the earlier decades of direct mail, acquisition, in fact, was a profit center. And organizations could sustain themselves from vigorous and high-volume acquisition programs. But now they can't because the cost of obtaining a donor is far greater than those initial contributions from that donor are going to be. So unless you have retention to begin returning the investment on that acquisition dollar, it's, it's as I said, an unsustainable model. I think the, the recession, as you point out, aggravated that, meaning it made it, it made it clearer that the old model would no longer work. But, you know, even before the recession, long before the recession, your black blood indices we're showing a, uh, a remarkable upsurge in attrition rates or a downtrend in retention rates and a downtrend in the number of new donors available to the nonprofit uh, market. So this trend came about long before 2008. It sped up, particularly for health-related and some of the other sectors, because of the recession. But it, 
it's not going to change. The economic climate is not going to save the organizations from having to deal with the retention. And so is organization shift from this sort of churn and burn or hunter-gatherer mentality, if you will, to more of a relationship-building, sustainable approach? I mean, from your years in the nonprofit sector, what are the sectors that do a good job at this that though the organizations can look to and say, hey, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train. And if we behave more like these types of organizations, We really can build longer-term relationships and improve retention. I'm not sure it's done by sector as much, Steve, as it is by the organization's uh, leadership, the age. I'm not an ageist since I'm an old man. The older leadership, I think, is a problem for for retention because doing doing a proper and uh, effective job in retention requires a lot of work a lot of innovation and a lot of figuring out. It's a, it is an attitudinal thing as well as a behavioral thing. And most of the existing fundraising leadership, the senior level, was brought up on a uh, behavioral model, the transactional model of recency, frequency, monetary amount. So I think one of the, uh, one of the things that we have to realize is that until this generation of uh, do it my way or go the highway folks are off the scene, uh, this is going to be difficult to change in a lot of organizations. So death may be retention's uh, best friend, the death of the fundraiser, or retirement of certain elements in the fundraising community. Well, it's an interesting point. It sort of reminds me of the, the Peter Drucker quote that culture eats strategy for breakfast, that ultimately this may be a culture issue that will overcome any strategy, any plans you have if you don't fundamentally believe in making this type of a shift. No, absolutely, and and the the evidence of that is in the commercial world, which has been far more adaptive and, and quicker to move on this set of uh, what they call customer satisfaction, customer loyalty, customer commitment issues than the nonprofit sector has. I mean, there is nothing mysterious about how to do this. The commercial world, using academic theory that was developed thirty years ago and putting it into practice, has proven that uh, that it works. And, and that is why retention in the commercial world are, are nearing the 92, 93% level, while in our sector it's at the 41% level. And, and it, it goes entirely to an understanding that the organization must focus on the donor. It is the donor's voice, the donor's attitude that creates the donor's behavior. The organization controls that part of it, the, organiza- the attitudinal part. The organization can make or break a donor's attitude toward that organization. And it's only the donor's attitude that will influence the donor's behavior. So this, this long-standing belief in the uh, nonprofit world that it is technique, the color of envelopes, the emotion of the copy, all that, is, is over, vastly overweighted because we know from all the studies that have been done that it is the way uh, an organization conducts its donor services, it is the way an organization reports on its mission and why the donor's uh, gift made a difference. Uh, the organization's uh, report to the donor in terms of recognition and gratitude. All of these things matter. All of these things are measurable. So when we talk about retention, we're no longer talking about some fuzzy, nice, uh, you know, use pink paper, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, this is this is all hard empirical data that shows what an organization can do to improve its retention rate. 
It's interesting that you use the word customer service because I found probably in the past year, whenever I talk to somebody in an organization who's very successful at donor retention and engagement, sort of doing the things that everyone else calls best practice, they use the word customer service as well. And I've noticed this sort of shift in mindset to a, hey, we're we're not in the stewardship business. We're in the customer service business. We need to, you know, thank donors appropriately. We need to follow up on things. We need to use multiple channels to engage people. And it's more like a retail sector customer service operation of like a Zappos or an Amazon or other respected retailers who, you know, get high marks. And, and that's Absolutely. the model that they're following. Absolutely, and there's a there's a reason that every uh, every meeting at Amazon that uh, that Jeff Bezos, the the founder, conducts, he conducts with an empty chair in front of the group, which represents the customer, and uh, he he will not let a meeting go on where people aren't focused on that empty chair and the customer, because if they're not talking about that customer's interest, then he ain't listening. He's not going to allow that meeting to go on. And every successful organization I know when it comes to donor relationship management has the donor uh, in mind, not the organization. It doesn't matter what the organization says about itself. That's not what's important. What's important is what the organization says to the donor that holds a mirror to the donor and says, you've done a wonderful thing. You've made this happen. Thank you. The other thing you mentioned is, again, maybe it's a clash of cultures or philosophies, but this idea about is fundraising an art or is it a science? And my assumption is that a lot of people believe it's much more of an art form than a science. But clearly, a lot of the analytics research, a lot of the things that you guys have done at Donor Trends to look into why are donors loyal has a heck of a lot more to do with the science, you know, there's enough data that tells us why it works and why it doesn't. And it's not pink envelopes or did you mail a fake membership renewal or not. There's hard data that shows why do people remain loyal. Talk a little bit about just some of those things that you guys have drilled into and found of what really is donor loyalty. No, exactly. And while uh, Donor Trends and Donor Voice has done a lot of that, uh, so too has uh, your target analytics division. I mean, uh, Chuck and the gang there led the way on a lot of this, and that's where your a lot of the target predictive models come out of developing those hypotheses. But it, first of all, it's rooted in the belief by uh, by people that because it is a relationship, that there's an art to a relationship. Well, that that's true to a point, but. What goes into a relationship, the academics in the commercial world have long ago been able to define and measure in an empirical, quantifiable way. So uh, it is possible to identify what, what portion of the donor experience accounts for what portion of the donor's loyalty or the donor's money. For example, 19% of American donors leave an organization because of uh, poor donor service. And poor donor service can be quantified and identifying those things that make for poor donor service or good donor service. For example, slow resolution on complaints, uh, the, uh, the slowness in terms of getting a uh, thank you message. doesn't matter whether it's personal or not personal. It matters whether it gets out there quickly. The way the person's name is directly uh, printed on a letter or in, uh, listed in a uh, donor listing. These seemingly little things which require a lot of work on the part of the organization pay enormous dividends. So what we've done is we have, we have measured every part of this 
and surveyed each organization's donors to find out exactly what what is important. And we've done away with the myth that a lot of organizations have. For example, many organizations publish expensive newsletters or magazines. Well, in seven out of ten cases, those uh, those publications are a negative in the eyes of the donors. They drive them away. They don't help it. Yet you you talk to a magazine editor and they go uh, they go crazy when you suggest that. But it's measurable and it's provable. And in fact, when they're removed, retention rates go up. And the same with with item after after item. The reason this is so difficult is that the fundraising sector, the nonprofit sector. Has has been slow coming to the to the quantifiable scientific mathematical way of looking at things. And this is this is something I understand completely because for forty five years I was a copywriter. I, I wasn't into this say, analytics. I happen to be a math major from from my college days, but uh, that's that's not why I got into fundraising. But now the technology is so inexpensive, and these uh, these algorithms and, and all these predictive analytics have been developed. It's crazy for a fundraiser to think that the human brain is better than a computer. It's not. It just simply isn't. Uh, you can you can always do better at least ninety five percent of the times with a predictive model than by someone looking at a spreadsheet and working on RFM. And so a lot of this, uh, Steve, is is uh, people are coming face to face with the reality that they have to learn different things. There are there are different ways and more accurate ways of doing it. And so. You know, admitting that things have to change is always difficult. Humans don't deal with change uh, very easily, and we, we saw we saw that, for example, in in medicine in the fifties uh, when the when the CAT scan and and other things began to show up. I mean, most physicians didn't want any part of that. They they felt that this uh, this electronic vacuum tube blowing thing in the corner couldn't do nearly as well as a physician's hands and eyes and speaking to a patient could. But as it turns out, it can, and when it's coupled with the art of medicine, it becomes a powerful combination. Roger, these are all great insights. Appreciate you joining the show. Hope to have you back uh, sometime in the future. Thanks, Steve. Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Will Carey is the Director of Leadership Gifts and Plan Giving at the Portland Museum of Art. Will joins the show to talk a little bit more about things he's seeing in the arts and cultural space. Welcome, Will. Thanks for having me, Steve. We've noticed in both the Blackboard Index for the past couple of months some positive fundraising signs when it comes to arts and cultural organizations. And just a few weeks ago, Giving USA reported that uh, overall giving in terms of the share of giving to arts and cultural organizations grew in 2012. What are you seeing in your you know, sort of neck of the woods, if you will, in terms of uh, the fundraising environment for arts and cultural organizations? I think we're definitely seeing the same thing, Steve. We've been fortunate that our development team here has been dramatically increasing the amount of money we're raising in the past couple years. And I think part of that is the economy improving slightly, um, and at least our donors feeling more comfortable about giving again. For us specifically, it's also partially due to an increase in resources that we have internally. We've grown our development office from four and a half people to eight full-time staff in the past three years. And as a result, we're just able to reach 
reach a lot more people. And that has really affected our ability to fundraise both for restricted and unrestricted funds in a positive way. So we're definitely trending in the right direction. And I think we're seeing that among our cultural colleagues here in Maine as well. That's a good point you brought up, which is clearly there at the Portland Museum of Art, you made a conscious decision to invest in fundraising even during the downturn, sort of you know, almost doubling your staff. Maybe talk a little bit about, for listeners, how did you sell that internally at the organization that you need to actually grow the fundraising staff to get to where you wanted to be from a, from a goal standpoint? Absolutely. It, um, it actually predated me. I was partially the result of that initiative. I started here about three years ago, and we hired two additional development staff at, um, at that time and then have continued to add staff beyond that in the past couple of years. It actually started with our when we hired a new director here, Mark Basir, and he and the board were sort of talking about how to handle this downturn. And one of our trustees said, you know, it's times like this when we can either clamp down and cut everything or we can invest in the area where we can get the greatest return. And he felt like a development staff, uh, a robust development staff was the best way to do that. So we um, hired an outside consultant to do an audit and make some recommendations about staffing and began to hire um, really in early 2010. And um, as a result of that investment, we've, you know, increased our um, overall fundraising here for the operating budget from 1.9 million two years ago to 2.3 million last year and we have a goal of 3 million flat for this year so we're really ramping things up as a result of that investment um, which I think proves that it was the right call at the time. Those are really encouraging growth rates. And I know in particular there in in Portland, you're getting into the busy time of the year. And I think that's true for a lot of arts and cultural orgs as we get into the summer months. You have more vacationers uh, coming to visit these institutions. What are things that you do differently from a fundraising perspective as you get into these busier seasons of the year from a from a visitor standpoint? Yeah, I think there's sort of two two interesting aspects. Um, one is just what we do um, with our regular visitors who come through the door. Our our team here, especially the visitor experience department, does such a strong job on two fronts. One is trying to bring in new audiences and we do a lot of we have these member for a moment cards that we've created to try to get to bring new audiences in obviously we do strategic advertising both in print and online and the second thing we do that I think is really important is just try to provide outstanding customer service. The group here uh, in our visitor experience department has really prioritized staff training and customer service as a way that we can make a really good first impression on those summer visitors who might be coming from Boston or New York or other places and are stepping into our museum for the first time. We know we can't necessarily compete with the larger museums in those big cities in terms of collections and exhibitions in every area, but where we think we can really excel is creating an interesting and rewarding on-site experience. 
I like that you mentioned this customer service aspect. That's something I've been hearing a lot of, not just in the arts and cultural space, but but nonprofits of across all sectors really starting to develop this mindset of we're in the customer service business, right? That expanding that notion of maybe what was traditionally classified as stewardship to really being customer service. And how is that experience when someone visits a gallery or someone calls in to update their, their membership information or really any interaction that they have with the organization? that being really important to think about it from a customer service mindset. Correct. I, I, I completely agree. I think Jones, who heads up our visitor experience department, deserves a ton of credit along with our director for recognizing how important a factor that can be. Lizzie proposed um, creating a call center, um, which we've done, and we now have a staff who handle all incoming calls so that we could be sure that we're giving people consistent information and sending them to the right place when they call. We can guide them through our, our website and the online checkout process if they have questions about the website, or we can just answer question, general questions for them and renew their membership over the phone. So we've streamlined the sort of inbound customer service so that it really starts before you even set foot in the door. And I think that our group here definitely deserves a lot of credit for that. That's definitely an innovative approach to, to thinking about doing things. And I know in general, you know, you guys obviously in the art space oftentimes are bringing in new artists, innovative approaches to doing things. Maybe let's talk for, for a couple of minutes here about areas of innovation that you've been seeing other institutions do or things you're doing there at the Portland Museum of Art that are a little bit different and, and maybe are trying to change how you engage with members, supporters, or just visitors in general. I, I think there are, there are several things. I mean, it's interesting. I think technology is obviously the thing that people talk about the most. But for us, I think with technology, what we really focus on is using our database and using our data to maximize our efficiency as an organization and to maximize our fundraising. One thing that I'm seeing a lot of, and we're certainly doing here, is just beginning to put a lot more data into the database from every single department, not just the development department and membership, but from all departments and using that data to help influence our strategic decision-making process. And that's not something that's exclusive to the nonprofit or arts and cultural space by any means. But I do think it is a shift in attitude from, oh, we know what our members think, or we know what's best for our donors, to, well, let's really look at how they're engaging with the institution and respond based on what we're seeing and interact with them in that way. I think the other interesting area for us is, and for all museums and cultural institutions, is programming. Obviously, the primary strength for museums is their exhibitions and collections, but I think programming has become almost just as important, and our learning and interpretation department has done a great job bringing in artists, and you mentioned that. We have started a program called Artist Interventions, where we're bringing in local artists on our free Friday evenings to do collaborative, interactive programs in our galleries. And they're perfect for families. They're perfect for couples out on a date. But I think that's another example of us, of a larger trend, which is 
museums really have to um, do a great job of proving their worth um, to our community and to our constituents, that it's not just enough to be there and to have this collection, that in a time where there's so much competition for people's attention, that we're able to prove that we're relevant, that we're active, and that we're engaging with them, and that the conversation isn't just from us to them, it's also including them. One thing I'm kind of curious about are you mentioned you've started to collect some new data and some new ways to help understand better the relationship that you have with supporters. What might be an example or two of things that in the past you didn't capture or weren't really paying attention to that's now become more valuable information from a fundraising standpoint? Sure. I think um, just having all of our lectures and programs and educational opportunities, classes, group tours, all in the same place where all of our membership and other data is stored, has made it possible so that we're getting a, a full sense of what a donor or a member's relationship is like with the museum. So, for example, now when I go into a uh, a member's record, I can see how, not only how many times they visited, but if they purchased this early childhood drawing class for their son or daughter, if they've attended a lecture, if they visit a lot. And we can begin to tailor our interaction with them based on how they are best enjoying the museum. So if they're signing up for a lot of educational programs, when they come up for renewal, we talk about the value of educational programs. If they visit a ton, we talk about the value of membership, how membership's a great value because it gives you free admission. And these aren't necessarily groundbreaking things, but I think especially at, at smaller institutions, they're important ways to integrate data from all departments into your decision making. And for us, that's most relevant with our fundraising and membership. Will, thanks for joining MP Voices. Really appreciate uh, you lending your thoughts to what's happening in the arts and cultural sector. Thanks for having me, Steve. Up next on MP Voices, I want to spend some time talking about peer-to-peer fundraising. And so I want to welcome to the show Amy Braderman with Blackbaud, who is one of the leading experts on peer-to-peer fundraising in the nonprofit sector. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Now, I know that you spend a lot of time looking at what makes peer-to-peer fundraising events successful and also what makes them sometimes not as successful. What are some of the things you're obsessed about right now when it comes to measuring whether or not peer-to-peer is really working for a nonprofit organization? I think my big obsession right now is really looking at our current best practices and reevaluating them, asking ourselves the tough questions. Are these best practices still the right best practices we should be using? The world's changed a little bit. Is it time for us to, you know, take that look in the mirror and say, hey, Maybe we need to change up what we're doing if we want to see some increases. I've noticed that in our world of peer-to-peer, we've had a lot of flat fundraising over the years. We're starting to see a little bit of growth, but in my mind, when you're seeing a 1% or 3% growth, it's great. You know, it's good. But could you see more? I definitely think there's greater opportunity out there for organizations. But in order to get there, I think sometimes we have to recognize that maybe it's time that we've changed, we've changed some of our strategies and tactics. 
One of the things that is really powerful about peer-to-peer fundraising is the fact that a growing percentage of it happens online, which means we can measure lots of stuff. How many participants, how much are they sharing and emailing, how much, how close are they to a goal? So that's really great. But do you think that there are some, some sort of tribal knowledge or metrics that have become a best practice that really aren't? And maybe we should look at them a little bit differently than maybe we have in the past. Yeah, I I definitely live and breathe and die in data. I love it. Um, And especially online data. I never really look at offline data when it comes to -to peer-to-peer for the fact that every organization has different ways of entering and calculating that offline data. So online data can really just tell you the most about your program and what um, and your greatest opportunity. So one of the things I think is, this is another one of my obsessions that I'm really focused on is we've been really measuring ourselves by the percentage of participants we convert into fundraisers. So every year we cast a wide net, we recruit all of these people, and then we set goals for ourselves to say, okay, well, I'm going to convert 50% of the people who have signed up online become fundraisers, or I want 100%. Well, the reality is that when we look at data across all organizations over the last, um, just I'll go back five years, we haven't really seen a change in the online trend of converting participants into fundraisers. It's about a 27%, 30% split of people who register online and then become fundraisers. So you have this small group of people who are raising all of your funds every year. So in my mind, I have to think to myself, is that really the right, you know, metric I want to be looking for and measuring how many people I'm converting into a fundraiser and building my plan off of that, especially since the data stagnant over the last few years. I, I always tell this story when I think about this is um, I'm a big Greek mythology fan, took my first class in the sixth grade, fell in love with it, and I've been hooked ever since, and I always think of Sisyphus, and he's the guy in the underworld who continually pushed this boulder up a hill. Um, and he never got to the top. And it, once he got close, it would come down. And it was like telling the myth of feudal labor. And I kind of feel like that as we try and convert, you know, and change that dynamic of that 70 30 split of fundraisers versus non fundraisers. So, one of the things that I've really been talking with nonprofits a lot about is saying, hey, why don't we just as a group, you know, accept that we're not going to, we're not going to see a huge shift here. Maybe we'll see a little bit of shift. We can still work to a shift. We can still have our great marketing plan and our communications plan to really try and change those, convert those participants from someone who signs up to say, I'm just going to walk in your event to someone who actually takes the next step into fundraise. But if we spend the bulk of our efforts and really come up with kind of re-looking at the strategies that we're using to take those individuals who have signed up and started fundraising or raising all the money, I think we would then see a greater influx. Um, and we start seeing more growth in that area of fundraisers. I think going back to my rock metaphor, it's a lot easier to keep rolling stone moving than to get one started. So if we can do our best to really cultivate, coach, get to know, build relationships with that small group, that 27%, I think we'll have a greater return on our investment. My thing with peer-to-peer these days is really saying, you know, let's focus our efforts on where we can make the greatest impact instead of trying to um, be everything to everybody. You know, we're never, we're just not capable of doing that as a a group. Even as a society, we can't be everything to everybody. So focus your efforts on where you'll see the biggest return 
So I know from looking at some of our donor-centric data that at overall as a whole, year over year, we're only retaining 27% of our fundraisers. So these are people that actually raised money the year before and then came back the following year. Now that's again another broad global number. Some organizations might see different trends there, but that's the industry average. The other more interesting thing is that when we start diving into um, that 27% and we look at individual segments, you'll see that we retain team leaders at a much better rate. I think it's something like 45%. So, but again, that's of only the people who have fundraised the year before and then came back. So at best, we're still losing 55% of our folks who were fundraisers the prior year. So I just keep thinking to myself, if we really focus, again, on that 27%, build better plans, keep them, cultivate them, you know, kind of borrow some tactics from our friends over in Major Giving, employ those on our fundraisers, I think, again, you would start to see that growth because once the fundraiser knows how to fundraise, they have greater success the following year and tend to raise more than a brand-new fundraiser. It all ties together. Like when I look at all these metrics on retention and new participants versus multi-year participants and who raises more and who's more effective, it all goes back to that first little segment of people saying, let's build a plan around these 27%. Let's stop building plans around everybody. I think you touched on an important point there. Well, a couple of important points, but one of them was that a lot of these peer-to-peer events started out as events, not necessarily as large fundraising programs. But since then, a lot of them have matured, gotten larger, and there's almost a tipping point now where a lot of these events are of such magnitude that traditional acquisition, retention, cultivation techniques that you would use for donors have to be applied to peer-to-peer donors. And so like you said, if 30% of event participants are donors, you're better off chipping away the stone and focusing on that 30%. And within that 30%, the vast majority of those people who raise the money are people like team captains, but their retention rate is can be anywhere between 40 and 50%. So again, focus on where the fundraising dollars are from, not necessarily the whole rock, that you've got to chip away the stone to make any real long-term progress. Exactly. And this kind of goes with, you know, a little bit of us as an industry kind of changing the way that we think about things. I'll share one of my pet peeves because it goes back to your point about an event. So all of these, we'll take walks because they're, um, you know, are one of the most popular that a lot of organizations do. I guess they're probably the oldest. Maybe I think they were probably the first. You know, the traditional non-competitive one to three mile walk where fundraising is encouraged, but you don't have to. Those are the events that have definitely been around the longest. And I think those are the ones that, A, I love the most, and B, also <laughs> caused me some of the most, the greatest issue. So the reason that I love them the most is because I often hear people say, oh, well, my event didn't do well because there's so much competition in the marketplace. And my thought on that is, No, that's a really good excuse, but it's still just an excuse. If you look at it on the other side, because there are so many events out there, the people coming to your event really want to be there. So you didn't hit your goal because there's too many events. Maybe we just didn't talk to those people and encourage them to fundraise in the right way. Yeah, the good news is there are a lot of events, but the people who came to your event must have very high affinity for your organization because they picked you over all those events. Exactly. There's four of that. I live in Washington, D.C. 
during the fall and spring, there's four different, you know, there's a different walk event every weekend. There's usually two or three on the same weekend. But I'm going to go to the one that I care about. I'm going to fundraise for the one I care about. Do It's great to know those other ones are happening, but they don't affect me as an individual. So I think, again, we have to get past the mindset of this competition thing because you're not really, maybe you're competing to acquire people, but once you've acquired them, they're into you. They like you. So you need to then cultivate and steward them so they'll do what you want them to do. I think the other, my other kind of like little pet peeve in the peer-to-peer walk world is that we tend to um, be a little bit angry <laughs> at, those, at that 70% of people that aren't fundraising. You know, we say, oh, they just come to our event and they get all of our stuff and they don't give us anything. And, you know, oh, and they cost me money. I have to get them hot dogs and I have to do get a clown. And, and my other comment to that, I think this is, again, where we have to go back and focus our efforts and change the way our, our thinking is. When we market these peer-to-peer events, we market them to everybody. We say, come to our event, put on our color, show up. Let's all come together and make a difference, and we're walking for a purpose. And as nonprofit organizations, you know, we don't usually say in that marketing acquisition message, oh, yeah, and we want you to fundraise. That's like the secondary message. So all those individuals that were saying, gosh, you didn't do anything for me, you just signed up and you didn't fundraise and were a little mad at them, they're actually doing what we asked them. These individuals think that they're helping us because we just invited them to our event so that they would be a part of our movement to, you know, cure a cause or to, we've done this to ourselves, so we can't accept expect that everybody's going to be a fundraiser and we can't expect that everybody's gotten our message because the way that we're marketing and talking about these programs is it's a free event and you're making a difference by just showing up. So if I'm making a difference by just showing up, you should be thanking me for doing that and not being angry. So I think, again, that's just another mindset that we in the peer-to-peer world need to start recognizing that we have different segments of our population and we should be appreciative and thankful for our fundraisers and our participants as well. So they didn't fundraise, but they did help us out by, we have that amazing picture, thousands of people because of all those individuals that signed up and then showed up on that day really the key to making sure that program is successful. Amy, these are great insights into peer-to-peer fundraising. Really appreciate you joining the NP Voices show. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode six of NP Voices. I'd like to thank our guests, Roger Craver, Will Carey, and Amy Prater. This episode is brought to you by the letter H. Thanks for listening.